When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the kingdoms of Tiraslene to the mysteries of the Wildwood to the dreaded Immemorial City and the mines of Skellen filled with trolls, this is Casterly Talk. I, as always, am your host for this particular adventure, Alden Diaz, here to discuss episode six, The Prisoners of Skellen. This one here, a teleplay by Hannah Friedman, this time co-writing with Stu Selenek, directed by Philippa Lothorpe. And I am not alone today for this episode filled with drama, lies, truth, treasure, wands falling off of cliffs and making me very stressed out. This week, I am joined by one of the news editors at Collider.com and a Willow enthusiast, the Willow enthusiast, I might argue, of the season, Maggie Bocella, making her debut here on Casually Talk. How are you, Maggie? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. And this is the part where we pretend like we haven't just talked for like 20 minutes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) How are you? Oh, I'm so well. Oh, it's 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 wonderful to have you. Um, Your coverage of Willow has been so good and so fun and so enriching and your interactions with John Kasdan and with the cast. So I've already sort of taken the temperature on how you feel. But for people that don't know you, for people that haven't seen that stuff, which will all be linked and you'll be able to access that if you're watching or listening, uh, just sort of give everybody the rundown of your experience with the show up until this point. So I kind of fell into Willow sort of accidentally when Star Wars Celebration happened back in May, obviously, I was working it remotely from home. A couple of my coworkers were uh, at the at the event. They interviewed, I believe it was Ellie Bamber, Aaron Kellyman, and Ruby Cruz on the uh, red carpet, as well as John Kasdan. And so I was going through, you know, editing their audio, putting it up into stories. And my mom was, I was talking to my mom and saying, you know, we're, we're, ta- we're doing Willow coverage. And she was like, oh, have you seen the movie? And I said, no, that seems like something you would have shown me as a kid. And she almost literally dragged me by the arm into my (laughs) living room and sat me down we put it on on disney plus and just instantaneously it reminded me so much of the kind of 80s schlock that i grew up on so labyrinth dark crystal all the stuff Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. and so i fell headfirst in love with this world and with this kind of everything that ron howard and bob dolman created with the film and so when the series eventually sort of rolled around Two months in advance, I asked our TV lead if I could review it because I did feel really passionately about it. And it seemed like something that if somebody was just watching it from a perspective of one, having not seen the movie and two, not really caring about it, that they wouldn't get it, that it wouldn't click because of the nature of this show. So from there, I kind of stole the crown of Queen of Tiris Lane from Sorsha and yes. you know tumbled into doing, I did the junket. I've spoken to the cast who are all just 
wonderful human beings by yeah. large. I've spoken with John Kazan a couple times. I've written a couple of separate features. So I've just, it's very rare that a, a work thing turns into a hyperfixation for me, but that's what's happened here. So it's been that and like Top Gun Maverick and nothing else this year. Yeah, it's been a huge moment in your life and in your home for the 80s legacy sequels. Uh, extremely different, but both of them extremely celebrated so far. The, the reaction to the show has been so heartening to see um, on so many levels. The real world level of just seeing the legacy of Warwick Davis continue to see Ron Howard involved producerially and to see Kasdan sort of, you know, he's worked with Lucasfilm before on Solo, but to sort of step out of the shadow of his father, run this mm -hmm. himself, and, but still, you know, still homage his dad a lot. Like we got that Raiders of the Lost Ark homage uh, with Kit last episode. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a lot of stuff that's happening that feels very uh, cheeky in the best way. Like you said, mm -hmm. it's, it, it, re it requires not an expert knowledge of that first film, but it requires an understanding of that, uh, of a certain tone that it knows yeah. it's not taking itself super seriously. Yeah. Um, but it also earns all of the emotions. I mean, people saw, uh, I'll pull it up here again for the YouTube viewers. Like, look at that. That's heartbreaking. That's, that's, <laughs> that's that moment. And we'll get there. I mean, th these, these moments with these characters are so earned uh, and they're so beautiful. And, and the way that they have really put the legacy cast at the forefront and mm -hmm. transitioned Willow into this fatherly mentor role. You know, Warwick's compared it a lot to Mark Hamill and Last Jedi and all that stuff's really been working for me. So again, your coverage has been wonderful. I encourage everybody to go check it out. It shows when somebody is covering something because they want to um, mm -hmm. and works work. You know, like this is like, you know, if you're on YouTube, like this is not a, you know, this is not casually talk, the nonprofit, like everybody is, you know, everybody's getting uh, a little bit of ad money. Everybody's, you know, we're covering it. It's the willow beat, you know, things like that. But when you love it and when you're engaged with it and you can meet it halfway, um, that goes a long way. And so I think that you've, you've done such a, uh, just a gorgeous job with that, especially in terms of not holding it. Something we're talking about off air, not holding it to the standard of house of the dragon or mm -hmm. of rings of power or the witcher and all those things because interestingly enough uh, and you could talk about this a little bit too before we get into the nitty-gritty that's not your bag those are not things not. That, that you're into so how is yeah. that good for you to sort of not go outside of your comfort zone because it fits a lot of the stuff but not the current run of fantasy tv yeah, it's so it's very strange because I do remember whenever House of the Dragon was there and time means nothing to me. That whole streak, you know, I know everything that happens in that show because, you know, you run news articles, you run spoilers, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of it's not that there was kind of a, a block there in terms of learning lore and all this stuff. But I think honestly, I do think it's just a difference in tone. I think it's the thing that I love about Willow is that it does harken back to the time in the 80s when, you know, nobody explains their lore. They just dump it on a plate, give it to you and say, you know, either live with this and get on this train with us and enjoy it or, you know, we can leave it at the door. And I think that's the thing that I love, particularly in fantasy, because I do like fantasy, do not get me wrong, uh, but I've always been more of like the way that I describe it is I was always a Percy Jackson kid over a Harry Potter kid. Mm. So, you know, the kind of world that integrated it with things that we're already familiar with versus sure. something that's, you know, whole hog, you gotta, you gotta go all in 
with the lore and stuff. But yeah, I think, and I think that's what makes Willow so special is that it is, I don't want to say accessible, but it does feel of a different, like, it's almost like my kind of in with fantasy as a kid with Labyrinth. If Mm -hmm. you know me, if you've known me for more than 15 seconds, it's my favorite movie of all time. And it feels like the series, obviously the movie's on the same level because they came out within two years of each other. But the series feels on that same level of like, somebody's going to watch this and they're going to become absolutely obsessed with it. And it's going to open a gateway to so much more stuff, whether that's stuff from the, the you know, actors' filmographies, whether it's other fantasy stuff. Like it kind of, mm-hmm. it feels like a, a starting point or like a gateway drug in that way. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a really good way to put it. And, 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 and you know, accessibility is a difficult thing because it means so much uh nowadays and, and people there it's like a moving goalpost right like <laughs> what it, what is accessible is well your mileage may vary uh mm-hmm. there were people that thought something like rings of power was very uh, inaccessible and some people that thought very much the opposite um but in terms of willow i think it's the confidence and mm-hmm. sort of the I don't know if I want to say reckless abandon, but a little bit. It's a little. It's, there's a little bit of swagger to those things, like Labyrinth, the uh, like Willow, like Princess Bride, uh, Lady Hawk. We mentioned off air a couple other ones. Like, like you said, all of them were like, "This is the lore, buy it or don't." Um, it's and and this show has done repeatedly and continues to do in this episode a lot of lore dumping, uh, but in a walk and talk very you know friday night early 2000s television show way and and it doesn't give you all of the answers it sort of gives you what you need for your for your characters in this mm-hmm. episode as we're getting into it we'll break it down by themes ideas characters what we responded to but there's a lot of stuff about truth and lies is sort mm-hmm. of a, an essential component especially with borman Allagash, and the the lingering spirit of Mad Mardigan over everything. Um, and they're not providing an answer for you here. Mm-hmm. There is no definitive account of the story as of yet. Um, and they've done that a few times. You know, we're in the castle of Nakamar a couple episodes back. What exactly was in that vault? What was calling to Borman? You know, what are the limitations of Allura? What is the path that we're going toward in terms of Willow's dark vision of the future? There are a lot of things that just sort of are and Mm -hmm. they have sort of an advantage in terms of like if you're making more star wars or if you're making more tolkien stuff or more ice and fire stuff you have to adhere to x y and z it has to fit in a certain way house of the dragon doesn't have the freedom to do whatever it wants because it needs to make sure that we end up here by the end of Mm -hmm. game of thrones or at least by the history willow doesn't have that it feels very liberated and uh, even comedically. Um, how have you been feeling about some of the, I don't want to say controversial, but again, these are not everyone's going to drive with them as much, but like uh, modern needle drops, modern speak, a little bit of a, of a 2022 comedic sensibility. How's that been playing for you? I am obsessed with the needle drops. I think it's such a, it's, it stuck out to me when I was watching the first episode. It was like, it's such a, str- it's a strange choice. Like it's, it's obviously mm-hmm. not the choice that you would expect, but uh, I was rewatching the Wildwood episode today and the, you know, the needle drop, I cannot remember the name of the song when it's, mm-hmm. you know, it cuts from there, it pulls from the, the book page in straight into Borman, just booking it with that song playing in the background. It gives you, it, it sets a tone 
in a very, very specific way. And I think the the language does too. And I think the language, when you're looking at this from the perspective of a family-friendly show, yeah, kids are probably going to understand Veil of Boobs as a joke more yeah. than they would understand, you know, any of the sort of lore dumping that they're doing. I think it does. And, and it's funny. I, I'm very much the kind of person that doesn't like set up punchline, set up punchline humor. Mm -hmm. And I'm very, very partial to situational humor. And I think that's pretty much most of what Willow's doing, yeah. especially with the specific type of dialogue, particularly with like Kit and Borman, the characters that kind of don't care as much. So I do think for me personally, it hits every single time. I think it's great. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think the needle drops are they they feel like a signature and you know most of them have been at the end but there was that one you talked about the very dnd opening scene of fighting the gales where that one throws you right in there and then there's one more during the party slow dance and uh the one that really sent the internet ablaze was the metallica one but i felt like or the metallica cover uh and but i thought that that was such a yeah we know what the show is don't don't misconstrue this as us not knowing we totally know um and it felt like you know you go to the peter jackson lord of the rings movies those have you know stuff from enya and annie lennox and things like that and but if you're moving over here and it's a little bit more poppy and the characters are younger and there's and the characters are as borman says you have the hots for each other and things <laughs> like that like it's gotta feel a little bit more uh, youthfully energized in certain ways, which I've, I've loved and I've loved with the comedy and I've loved the balance. Like you said, like a kid will hear veil of boobs and chuckle, but then there are certain things like, you know, the, the low key bondage joke with Scorpio and Borman, where it's like a kid might not pick up on that, but, but it's, you know, it's one for them, one for us, the adults can have a laugh too. And being able to scale it as Willow is dad, Borman is sort of like, you know, older brothers, sort of the, mm -hmm. you know, the next generation up, and then the kids um, has worked really well. And and then even you know, situationally, like you said, character based humor uh, in terms of everybody having a different sort of style. Not everybody's cracking one liners. People like Graydon, uh, even in this episode, you know, Alora, and sort of a moment of like media literacy of the own stories. Like, is this really the time for this? Like, is this really the time to have these conversations? Um, those are all things I really appreciate. So we're here in Skellen. It's stressful. There's lots of trolls. Uh, where would you like to start in terms of things that jumped out to you? Um, because I know you've gotten notes, uh, which means you've done more prep than I do because I don't <laughs> take notes. Um, so where do you want to start? I throw it to you, my friend. I think just in general, the, the first thing that I wanted to note was that I think the the middle sort of three episodes that we've gotten, so four, five, six, so Nakmar, Wildwood, and this mm. are such a strong set of episodes to me. Like the way, so I, I saw that most of this show in screeners before it came out. Mm -hmm. And the when I watched the first three, which they gave us the first three, and then they gave us the next four after. Right. And so watching the first three, it was kind of, for me, at least, before I kind of settled into it, it was a little bit of choppy waters. Kit got on my nerves a little. And then I got these next three. And, you know, it was just boom, boom, boom. Great episode, great episode, great episode. Specifically kind of, they're almost bottle episodes in a way. You know, you yeah. get one that's just Nakmar, one that's just the Wildwood. And then now mm -hmm. with Skellen, it's such an interesting way to do what is basically this show's second act. Is to lock these people in three separate places 
force them to deal with themselves, each other, and all of the stuff that they have to deal with in terms of the quest and sort of not force character development, but like put them in a place where they can't just run away from it. Particularly people like Borman, who's just been avoiding his feelings up until now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love the way you worded that. I mean, this is, you know, what after Nakmar, that sort of felt to me, you know, in Star Wars terms, which is unavoidable because it's me. Um, the <laughs> It, it felt like everybody having that dark side cave moment of what are they going to present to me? And then the beautiful ways that those are recontextualized at the time, you've got Kit just dueling. Okay, it's Nakmar, so it's going to be the spirit of Kale. And now it's, oh, no, she's dueling her father. Mm -hmm. And the way that that now plays even more powerfully upon a rewatch, things like that that I've all played. And sort of the give and take of Kit and Alora, how it felt like they had made progress there, and they did. And then mm -hmm. you know the the everybody being magically encouraged, to be honest, in the Wildwood uh, via the uh, Truth Plums, I believe they were called, um, also revealed things about them and their dynamic. But then here, the honesty presents itself in a different way as the stakes increase, which I really mm -hmm. liked. And this is you know if if the, that one's about fear. And then the next one is about love. This one feels like it's a lot about pain and mm -hmm. truth and lies, pain, trauma, um, sometimes comedically, like if, especially if you've rewatched the film, you remember sort of Willow and Trolls, how much he doesn't like them and all that. So <sighs> you get that sort of base level. And we'll talk about the trolls and like not the it's not like we got an immense fleshing out of their culture, mm -hmm. but they are sentient and funny and, and they have mm -hmm. a of working it feels like a workplace comedy almost at times with them um but things like borman like you said running away from his problems kit having to make a choice and then sort of feeling like the choice was taken from her uh mm -hmm. struggling with the lingering legacy of her father uh, it's it's very loaded in what felt like it was going to be a let's save the princess episode uh, the show does a great job of taking tropes and and finding the willow way to do them, which I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially it, the, the first thing that kind of popped into my head, the first time I watched it and then rewatching it was, and it's in my notes, I literally wrote something, something, you know, parallels between Mad Mardigan and Kit both ending up in those sort of hanging cages, mm -hmm. whereas Mad Mardigan kind of ends up tumbling out onto the ground. Kit gets herself out, which I think, not, not necessarily she gets herself out, she ends up getting herself out of that weird torture chair that the trolls put yeah. up. I think it was interesting that they said, no, the princess doesn't need rescued because even though the person rescuing her, you know, Jade's intention of rescuing her before Borman sort of leads them astray is very honorable, but I do appreciate the the way that this creative team has flipped every Disney princess trope they possibly could just on its head entirely. And mm -hmm. I think it does, especially because of where this leads, this entire episode leads with Kit, because I do think this is the best episode of the series, you know, where everything comes to a head with her. And I think starting off with her being that strong and then you kind of just slowly go downhill the farther they get into the mines and then everything crashes and burns. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, further into the mines is a great way to put it. And, you know, it, that sort of visual metaphor, and by the time we get down to that, whatever material it is very you know it's it's visually and it's the trope of trapped under ice but obviously mm -hmm. it's magic and you know, it, but it, but it looks like hell 
it, mm-hmm. it is it you are down in hell and for her to go from like you said echoing her father but being obviously uh, less of a goofball than than Mad Mardigan would have been at those times you know they even talk about uh stupid versus brave in terms of him and Alagasha but you get you know there it's resourcefulness then as we get more down into the temptation of should she have gone through that portal is it a trick is it a trap mm-hmm. those things are left ambiguous for us here we do get to hear um, who we believe at this time to be Jack Kilmer uh, yeah. uh, doing Mad Mardigan's voice for those, you know, temptation lines or those pleas for help, um, which, again, we don't know the true nature of them. And by the time we get to that last level, that sort of they can see the exit and they're all charging forward, then she breaks and it becomes mm-hmm. wrath and everything that has been building with her and Alora of feeling replaced i think mm-hmm. came from a, a very natural place that i i can't say enough great things about ruby cruz and ellie bamber as being able to play all of that so how did you feel sort of about the like it's later season and it's we're finally just gonna say it like you made me feel inadequate for years at this point i have an entire section in my notes just about this moment because it is the moment that has stuck with me the most throughout this entire show. You know, there's characters that I love, there's other moments that I love, but that specific line of, and I wrote it down, I could have finally understood why every time he chose you instead of me. Mm-hmm. And that just broke my heart. Like it, it has stuck in my brain for literally over a month now. I think it's, it is the moment of the series. It is when everything, when Alora's sort of development and her magic comes to a head, it's everything mm-hmm. with Kit's abandonment issues comes to a head. It's everything, you know, everything leading up to that with Borman and his feelings about, you know, I I have failed your father, but I'm not going to fail you. It's when everything sort of just, because there has to be a breaking point at some point, because you you put this many people together for this long a period of time, something's going to crack, you know, nothing's ever going to go perfectly. And you get the last episode, you get Wildwood where everything is kind of going great. You know, Jade and Kit get to admit their feelings. Alora and Graydon have a bit of a moment. Borman gets to have his moment. Willow gets to not be stressed out for five minutes. And then that's kind of the calm before the storm. And so I think this is just, it's, I cried every single time I watched it because obviously you said Ruby and Ellie just absolutely knock it out of the park. And for me, Kit really did kind of get on my nerves the first handful of episodes because I'm thinking, oh, are they just giving me this flat kind of bratty princess? But no, the more you kind of, peel back those layers and and everyone I know that's been watching the series week by week they they've said oh you know kick gets on my nerves and I'm like no just wait just wait and this that is the exact moment that I was thinking of when yeah all of that does have a reason it's not just a flat sort of character archetype to fill out the D&D party sort of if you will and I think it also I feel bad for Alora because none of this is her fault you know yeah. this series is so much about destiny isn't real your fate is made by the choices that you make Mm -hmm. and that's true of a lot of the characters in in this episode it's kit allagash willow everybody but alora's never gotten to make those choices for herself she's had choices made for her her entire life by mad mardigan by sorcia by willow and this is finally when she's getting that chance to start to make choices for herself and i think she to me it kind of feels a little bit like she's being yelled at for something that she like she feels like she's being yelled at for something that she didn't have any power over and mm-hmm. so both of them are 
correct in a sense. And I think that really does, which when Kit sort of falls through what I'm going to refer to as the magic ice and Alora is just, for one, Jade is wailing in the background, which Aaron Kellyman just said, like put me to tears with that. And then you get Alora who's also, you know, she's picked up Sherlindria's wand again after having lost it. And she's also kind of wailing, trying to get this to work. It's just, it's because first, like, how do I put this? It's not that the show has lacked that kind of emotion going forward, but it kind of is like they saved most of it and then just absolute just implosion of it, which I think was the right thing to do with a character like Kit who does bottle everything in. Yeah. I mean, it really felt like for as many aspects of this are coming of age, this really felt like that moment of we're entering the third act. We're entering the final stretch. These are the final tests. Whatever versions of us come out of here, I mean, especially mythically, whatever version of Kit comes out of this water, um, if it's water, um, is going to be uh, the woman that's going to get to the end. You know, whatever version of Laura that gets out of this, I mean, this is going into the pit and coming out if they can get to that daylight they will be changed and of course there are still things to resolve there's still a lot of Graydon's arc that needs to go on Borman still has not admitted truth now whatever portion of the truth is with Allagash seems to have died with Allagash Mm -hmm. Um, there are things that are still ambiguous but what is coming to the forefront what has boiled to the surface which I, I love the way you said it about about choices and about being able to make choices now um to see the child of prophecy uh, grow up and be sort of clueless uh, has been a great inversion of that. You know, it's not Anakin Skywalker. It's not Harry Potter. It's not any of the kids in Narnia. She was, they purposely raised her this way to protect her, but now it's all visually as the red hair begins to return in terms of her confidence, in terms of Ellie Bamber, um, really bringing it in those, those moments of having to do the spell casting and everything it feels like her and Kit are both breaking through to these points of finding agency as who they thought they were has been stripped away. I mean, mm-hmm. with Laura Dannon, it's very obvious because you're not Brunhilda, you're not Dove, you're not any of the things you thought you were. Um, and, but then with Kit, it's been in these these ways almost of, of pride and of status being challenged, finding out that Jade's been letting you win most of the time in terms of your your career as a duelist, as a warrior, finding out that your friendship wasn't even born necessarily organically. Um, And then whatever, you know, and as that became a romance, it's like, okay, so our foundation was on need. And now it's okay, well, I can get over that, but at least I have you. And then Jade finds out I'm not who I am. Uh, I'm actually this. And everybody's sort of realizing I'm not the person that I thought I am or the person that I've created to hide that consciously can no longer exist, which is why, why I love Graydon's insecurity about having been seen is that mm-hmm. he feels like this feels like the fantasy um, representation of imposter syndrome mm-hmm. uh, looked across the board for a lot of people, except for Borman and Willow. And, and yeah. it's the way that they are, uh you know feeling like they have to have these people in their charge feeling like the two adults of the group willow more so but it's 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 interesting to see like willow can only admit that he's a fraud under the influence of magic and borman under the influence of magic can get as far as you know reigniting the romance with scorpia but he can't 
he's, he can never get to a place where he admits guilt. And we still have Sorsha telling him that you'll fulfill a debt hanging over him. But where do you fall sort of? And of course, this is the challenge where it's like, we can say that you've seen a little bit ahead. Um, but where do you fall in terms of how they've been playing Borman up to this point as being the one in the group that is not confronting himself as he stands contrast to everybody else? I, If you've seen any of my Willow coverage, you will know I wrote an entire feature about how well I think they've constructed Borman because the thing about him is that he could very have easily have turned into okay, well, Val Kilmer can't come back. We need to fill this warrior role. Let's just Mm -hmm. jam somebody in there and sort of make him a copy-paste Mad Mardigan. And the thing that gets me about Borman is that he's so not that. He is very obviously, and this is also true of Allagash, you you can tell these people have spent time with Mad Mardigan. You know, if you've been friends with somebody for a long time, you kind of absorb their personality a little bit. You sort of start to reflect them a bit. You get that a lot out of Allagash and out of Borman, but you're, it's never just a copy-paste. And I think it's such an interesting thing of being having him be the one to carry that kind of, like, never really admitting guilt. Because obviously he fits into the sort of rogue category if we're using, mm-hmm. if we're using D&D terms there. But I kind of personally did not ever expect that of him uh, in the first handful of episodes. And then the more you peel back, particularly the moment when I sort of really started to notice it on a rewatch is in Nakmar when everybody else, their hallucination is a person. So Kale, Bavmorda, Elora's mother. And then the only manifestation that you get for Borman is the loss of the Lux Arcana, like the loss of this physical item. And it on, on one level, like on a very base level, you could misconstrue that as, oh, well, you know, he's just, he's selfish. He's, right. you know, he only cares about material items. And then you get this episode where you realize he stole the Lux for a reason, took it to the slaughtered lamb. You don't know why, but you do get that hint of, because he says something along the lines to Jade of, you know, if I get the curious, I can fix this. And she goes, fix what? And he goes, the biggest mistake of my life. So he, I think, of of everybody has had this sort of m- most interesting progression of like layers being peeled away. Because obviously with Kit, it's kind of, it's, you know what is plaguing her. You know it's the loss of her father. You know it's the mm-hmm. loss of her brother. With mm-hmm. Jade, you know it's this relationship with Kit. With Alora, it's coming to terms with who she is. Borman, you know nothing about. He has no connection to a legacy character aside from being Mad Mardigan's squire, which is compared to being the children of Mad Mardigan and Sorsha and then Alora frickin' Dannon is kind of tenuous. It's not as, it's not familial. It's not, she's the future empress. It's, so he's very mysterious. And I think both in writing and in the performance that Amar Chada Patel has been giving, it's, I think it's doing great things, especially with this episode when you get him and and Christian Slater together, which mm-hmm. on one level, they are chewing scenery like it's Blackroot. It is so... <laughs> they are having a blast here. Like yeah. All of those little fight sequences, like somebody I saw on Tumblr, somebody pointed out when they start fighting the first time, they're highly skilled fighters, and yet they resort to kind of yanking on each other's hair. Um, so it's becomes a slap awesome. fight on the ground. exactly so a lot of it's played for laughs but i do think kind of putting those two kind of in contention with each other really does up the ante and i'm 
having seen the next episode but not yeah. the finale i'm very interested in where that's gonna how that's gonna culminate because i feel like i feel like they're gonna tell us the whole story of you know why borman stole the lux but i feel like it's not gonna come till the very end and i'm desperate to know like i'm desperate for that closure <laughs> yeah i am as well i think that they've done a great job of seeding it and giving you pieces of it and playing with your emotions as much as as the, as the characters feel played by him like in terms of getting alagash's side of the story of he's the liar he's the traitor he's the reason why this happened borman is saying no he's the liar he's the traitor but then like you said what is his fear in nakmar what is he looking for in the slaughtered lamb why didn't he tell kit that he was looking for it in the slaughtered lamb why does sorcia say he's not going to do it for a royal pardon he'll do it for a debt there's all of these elements that are building and building and building and like you said the connection is not familial but what i like about him being the squire is that that hangs over him like he can be a rogue then we've seen you know how he got out and he went and immediately started partying and all that stuff and after his waterfall his very memeable <laughs> waterfall shower um he is i like characters that are not the other character so you get mm -hmm. things like uh first thing that comes to my mind is you know iron man 2 sam rockwell auditioned to play tony stark he doesn't get that role they bring him back and who does he play not tony stark like the character is like functionally stands contrast to somebody else so you know to, to the brilliance of we can't have mad martigan in the show we could easily just create like you said a badass warrior and they have a badass warrior but his insecurity is manifesting because as squiring for this person you should live up to their legacy and eventually become a knight in your own right and you should follow in their path and to have truly failed him on literal levels and thematic levels um because when mad martigan you know push comes to shove in the film he says i serve the nell one he finally chooses loyalty and so to have an apprentice for him that has is, is sort of not anti him but made the stumbles that he was able to overcome uh is really interesting especially because we're dealing with one of his children and the other child is is captured and we get a little bit of of what eric is up to lots of walking um and, and we'll get to that that tease there at the end of what might be going on but yeah it's it's a really interesting way to explore legacy in different ways in terms of who's who's motivated by what even willow to a certain extent who um, I'm not going to say he's taking a back seat, but he is sort of functional. He's a guide right now. He has a lot of thematic threads that have been set up, especially with the way that his daughter is able to motivate him to go on the journey. Um, but even he is sort of, you know, you could tell he's not yet revealed all of his cards. People will bring up questions sometimes about his vision. Uh, the only person that knew the truth of it was Silas. Silas is dead now. Um, so there's a lot of, you know the weight of the past lingering over everybody which is something that i've loved that the show has done which is what the best legacy sequels are doing you know it's that things couldn't work out and it's why i loved we talked about it in the last episode nikki and i that rule doesn't go on the journey with willow when willow asks him to because rule settled down he doesn't have anything left to prove or battle with inside yeah, I think I when in terms of the legacy characters, I 
because there's so many legacy sequels that have come out this year. You have Top Gun, you have this, you have the National Treasure Show that is now sharing a premiere date with Willow. And the yeah. thing that always kind of comes back is the first time I spoke to John Kasdan, I asked him about that. I said, was there any kind of fear of, of handling legacy characters? And mm -hmm. he called it a great gift to have those characters built into the narrative because it gives you a place to go. It gives you a place, you have something already established and it's a question of how do we grow on that and I think this show has really done that quite well especially in terms of, of maybe kind of taking the preciousness away from these characters that you love so much maybe not so much Mad Mardigan because of obviously everything with Kid and how much she still sort of loves him but you know Willow's a little more jaded he's you know he's pissy with these kids because they're yeah. not you know they're making stupid decisions and I've seen people a little a little miffed with Sorsha because you know she hid Alora away she hid Jade away and I think it does come back to obviously it's about the decisions that you make like maybe Sorsha is trying not to be her mom Sorsha is trying not to turn into Bad Morda I think in terms of her decisions and I think what you said about this show and I believe you said it a couple of weeks ago on the, on the show about mm. this the, uh, Willow as a franchise not being as sort of precious or popular or beloved as something like star wars or indiana jones gives them room to wiggle room to really play with that and really yeah. push these characters to those limits and give you and push beyond the foundation that we already understand into something that not only allows these legacy characters to to, to develop new depths but also give these kids I, I say kids like they're not my age but give these yeah. new, like these new characters a place to go that is really interesting and isn't just let's do the movie again but in a different font yeah i completely agree i mean that's it, it takes a level of honesty and it takes a level of maturity and it takes um asking asking logical character questions i love that you brought up sorsha and sort of like some of the heat she's been getting from viewers or from fans of the film but it's like yeah i mean that's what would happen right like you look over at you know we mentioned star wars a lot because this is it's sort of the the lucasfilm thing that we cover here um but it's like it, it, yeah like luke and leia are dealing with the fact that their father was the villain like that that hangs over them the choices that they make are suboptimal because they were dealt suboptimal cards and in terms of sorsha her and willow don't disagree on the protection of this child they don't disagree on the destiny of this child they don't disagree on a lot what they disagree on is approach and willow is trying to overcome insecurity and he has been since he was a younger man by finding this magical role, whereas Sorsha was prophesized to defeat and destroy her mother, helped facilitate that, did become a hero. But at the same time, as we found out about the blood of the six, as we found out about sort of the crone and sort of the role and sort of the legacy of darkness that has come and goes all the way down to Kit and Eric. And as we found out more about Galadorn and sort of that they were not this great kingdom that we thought they were, that, you know, it's not that good people didn't come from Galadorn, like, Met Artigan, like the original Eric, but it's like the buyer origin of the Bone Reavers is Galadorian slavery and things like that. So it's it's muddied things in interesting ways and in compelling ways and asked a lot of honest questions. And so to have everybody sort of have a reckoning along the journey, you know, Jade's was sort of the earliest with having to kill her father figure, Valentine. Uh, but then you know you find out later it's like he was all those things, but he also kidnapped you. Uh, or at least was part of it, you know, at least at least facilitated and engaged with it. 
it's a it's a it's a hard thing to do. So I'm glad that Kazdan said that. I, I I really admire that approach of they are a gift, but it doesn't mean that they can be what they were. Because if they are, there's no story. Like where do you go? And I, I like that we're in an era sort of of stories of midlife. Like because coming of age is always going to be a thing. That's always that's universal. But to do stories of people that are over the age of 45 that still have things to figure out um, is really compelling and interesting. Uh, so with that, uh, let's talk about Allagash for a little bit, because as of now, it seems like a one and done thing. Doesn't look like he's really going to make it out of that final troll attack. I love a good just, hey, do you want to do this to to a, you know a renowned actor like Christian Slater, someone who's been around the block a few times, come play a fantasy hero. Uh, if you have to pick somebody from that era that would have been a, a partner of Val Kilmer, feels right. Um, so, so how did you feel about all of all of his uh, interactions? I loved him to death. I remember yeah. I was very curious to, as to how he was going to be involved because they announced him. I believe it was at D23 mm -hmm. that when they were doing a little bit of, I think they showed a second trailer, they yeah. announced him. And I was curious because I was like, this is a pretty big name, you know, obviously the only other real big names that are attached are, are Warwick Davis and, and Joanne Whaley. So I was very curious. And admittedly, when I watched the screeners, because I watched them like, I think two weeks before the show ever premiered, we didn't have like a name, like a guide as to names. We didn't know who was playing who, as far, at least as far as I knew. Mm -hmm. And so that moment when he says, I'm Mad Mardigan, I got real suspicious <laughs> because yeah. I'm thinking, Disney, what have you done? what have you done like I had to kind of sit back and go let them explain because I'm so kind of protective of right Val and of Mad Mardigan but I do think that like I said before he plays it so convincingly like I absolutely believe that this is somebody who has been on adventures with Mad Mardigan that is friends with him that does care about him because he is meeting much like you know Amr's meeting that standard he is hitting every bar of like yes you know meeting that standard that Val did set and it, he's just he's so fun but he's also so heartbreaking at the same time and I think it does take mm -hmm. an actor like Christian Slater to really do that especially yeah. when you only have the one episode to do it because you know he starts on such a comedic level and then you get that last shot of him where it's like again it comes back to that idea of you know your fate and who you're perceived to be is determined by the choices that you make. And this guy who seems kind of a little selfish, a little kind of, you know, I, I'm helping you guys, but I don't really care about you people to make that final decision of I'm going to sacrifice myself to make sure that my best friend, best friend's kid makes it out alive. It is just, I mean, I was already crying by that point in the episode mm. both times. And I think that just, absolutely sent me over the edge that and the one the one of the first lines that he has which is it's the hope that really breaks your spirit and i just thinking about him being locked in that cage for 10 years because i think that's something that's a little bit of what kid is carrying too because i i rewatched wildwood today with my mom and that conversation that uh kit and Laura have when they're in the bone reaver sort of prison thing and Alora is saying you know, I, love is the most powerful thing in the universe. And Kit just did not believe her at all. Like she's so kind of, she's had enough thrown at her. She's dealt with all of this crap from, you know, people constantly talking about Alora Dannon and her kind of being an afterthought that she just doesn't believe her. So I think that that kind of really hits into what Kit is dealing with the entire episode, that idea that like, 
I don't have hope anymore because it's just going to, it's, it's just going to make things worse. So I think he putting him with Kit was such a smart, I think, idea. Cause if you had put him with anybody else for the rest of the episode, I think he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have hit as hard. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. You would have had the potential for comedy. You would have had potential for cool moments like we did with Borman and things like that, but putting him with Kit is it's, it's, because you know, she, she views Borman as so insufferable and they know he's not 100% trustworthy. But here it's like presenting her with the hope that he's speaking to, like you're so eloquently saying, like, this is somebody that claims to know where my father is. This is somebody that I know for a fact and Willow even verifies he is who he says he is. This is Allagash. They did fight at this battle. They do have this history. It's like, you're which is which is a thing you know there are lots of things that are very relatable um that have sort of like real world stuff like i love the the treatment of shalindria's wand as sort of like a car like like willow's dad willow is dad and he's like you're not supposed to be driving the car you crashed the car you lost the car all those things um this is sort of you know you meet your parents friends and all of a sudden it's like oh i have a different lens into who you were um before before i had uh you know my child perception of who you were and she was robbed of so many years of him that ruby cruz so beautifully plays sort of you know some of the smiles and how excited she is to hear about the stories and how she you know the the moment where he she says like what because he was an oath breaker and alagash is like no because he didn't invite me like different things like that like it plays so well it has a little bit of that absurd willow humor of we're just gonna do a joke and we're it doesn't need to be like you said set up and pay off it's just why does alagash pretend to only have one eye it doesn't matter it's not it's not relevant i mean you could look into you know you, you have some fun with it like as a symbol you know like maybe he's he had robbed himself of some of his sight and now it's the, the sight of his his friend's child that gives him a little bit more of clarity like we can ap lang ap lit this a little bit uh in terms of some of what's going on um which we always can uh a great moment of course for that is something that i just get very uh and i think i speak for everybody that's ever been on this channel because we're fantasy fans um when you get that sword moment with kit uh that you know it's like not only is it he left his sword behind, which is, I think, a moment of both pain because it's the fear of like, what does that mean? What would that, you know, what does that mean for his decision making process that we're not privy to? But also, her mythologized version of him was always he took baby Alora away, chose her over us, and went to protect her. And here she's seeing, no, he laid down the sword, at least in some capacity. What does that mean? But also, in a beautiful way, she's reunited her parents because she's mm -hmm. been carrying Sorsha's sword this entire journey. And so now to pick up, you know, Mads' sword, it's like, I, I, I need it. I need to see her dual wielding these at some point and to have the couple back together, at least thematically and symbolically. Um, all of that stuff just hits so hard. And and we're super high on Ruby Cruz here, just in general. Uh, this is Ruby Cruz Stan channel. She's just <laughs> incredible. Incredible. Yeah, it's it, there's and this is a completely surface level comment, but uh, we were talking about Jack Kilmer, uh, at least as far as we know, yeah. doing the dubbed in voice for his father for Mad Mardigan. But it's so funny to me 
that we ran a story about Jack Kilmer. He's going to be in a new Western called Dead Man's Hand. And mm -hmm. so I was working on that piece. I went to go find a picture of him for, you know, the featured image or whatever. Mm -hmm. It is shocking to me how much Ruby Cruz and Dempsey Brick look like they could be Val Kilmer's kids. Whereas yeah. Jack Kilmer and Mercedes almost, it's spooky that, they, that his TV kids look more like his kids than his real kids. It is spot on. And knowing that Ruby was pretty late in the game, yeah. that, that she was a late in the game recast is, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the business, you know, it happens, but wow. Like to get and the I two of them, it's, yeah. And it's funny, I think from a character standpoint as well, when I was pitching the show to my friend who I showed Willow to for the first time, I kind of, I said, if you took Mad Mardigan and kind of cut him down the middle and it's like the stubborn side and the kind of womanizer side and you just made those into kids, like that's, that's Kit and Eric. Like Eric got all the kind of womanizer, not stupidity, but kind of like, irresponsibility yeah but like and then kit got not only all of his stubborn but also all of sorcia's stubborn it's like you just cleaved him into turned him into kids and that's them and it's so because i mentioned to them when i when i spoke to them at the junket that it was so spooky to me how mm -hmm. much they reflect those characters not in a way that's like you know let's copy paste these characters and and give them and and you know make them do the same things their parents did but just it makes me believe that these are, are kids who grew up around those two people, which is a hard thing to do because I've watched a lot of movies, a lot of TV, where yeah. they kind of just stick small children in like, these are your parents now. And you just, you kind of don't really believe it. But I think because family and because that, you know, paternal connection for Kit is such a core theme of this series, they did spend a lot of time on that, both in their performances and the writing and everything. I think that it was something, it was really, really gratifying for me because I think that's something that's very easy to get wrong, uh, mm. but they did they did it so right. And I'm just, it's it it's devastating, but they did it so right. I agree with you. And and even, you know, looking outside of the the Tantalos family, whether that's the, the their maternal last name or their paternal last name is still ambiguous, but it's just, I, I want it to be Mad Mardigan's last name because <laughs> Mad Mardigan Tantalos might be the most over the top name of all time. <laughs> Uh, but even if it's uh, Sorsha's last name, it's still Sorsha Santos is also a dope name. But the even outside of them, I mean, like even reverse engineering it, like Alora already has an on-screen mom that's presented to us through visions. It's ambiguous whether or not it's a sort of magical causal loop type thing. Did her mother actually perceive her as a grown woman before her death? It's sort of up to the viewer. Um, it had punk uh, patches. Uh, if I can English, it packs a punch, a lot of thematic weight in terms of she doesn't have like Eric and Kit have reference for their father and traits to inherently um, latch onto and inherit uh, through interactions or through stories or anything like that. Because her mom was, you know, you get the idea. She was a commoner. She was just rounded up. She gave birth and was killed. But the the legacy that hangs over her to see that her mom, even in the end was resolute and believed she's, she's still managed to get that, that, you know, you get that combined with the com the, the confirmation of her powers that she did indeed manage to do that growth spell that she did manage to cure Graydon, all these things that have happened. She is becoming a resolute believer in herself. And it's something that I've loved in seeing her journey is that you know when she met uh, 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 Hubert and Anne, 
um, who are sort of like the Tom Bombadilly characters uh, of this show. It's that was her that was it dawned on her finally that blood will be on her hands just by the nature of her chosen one status of her prophesied status. Then that moves into Nakmar and how she's having to deal with that and how she's able to overcome and realize that there are people in her charge. And she's internalized that so much that even in Wildwood and now in this episode uh, in Skellen, she has matured isn't the right word because it's not like she was some childish fool before, but there's a certain resolute purpose that comes with her where she's accepting her tasks easier they're coming to her easier the visual storytelling the the choices in the script of it's taking her less repeats on certain spells to get it it's more focused and and willow you know sort of gives her the business for losing the wand and stuff but when she reacquires it um she's becoming who she said she was going to be, but not in the way that anybody wanted. It's not what Willow wanted, and it's not what Sorsha wanted. Sorsha wouldn't want her out there, and Willow didn't want her hidden. But somewhere in there is a synthesis, and and that's what you talked about, I think, a little bit with agency. Who are who are you going to choose to be? You can't avoid being Alora. That's set. That's magic, fate, the gods, whatever this world has, because you know it's very, like you said, it's very eighties. It doesn't take a lot of time to explain that stuff. But you don't have to be a Laura in the way they thought, which is really, really, I think, smart and elegantly done. Yeah. And I think this episode specifically, it's interesting seeing how they're visually representing her getting stronger in kind of two senses. One that I noticed because I rewatched Wildwood again today. But firstly, obviously, you get, you know, the entire minds of Scallon sort of reacting to this magic that she has that they're kind of literally bringing down the house when she sneezes, when she touches things, it's a very interesting way of, of exhibiting that, yeah, she is coming into a massive amount of power. She doesn't know how to deal with it quite yet, but you get the sense that she will, especially because in Wildwood, they're talking about, in that moment when she's trying to get him, get Willow to give her the wand, and he's talking about, you know, you've mastered two of these, now you just need to get something, something, and divination. Yeah. And this is something that took a second watch for me to notice. But that moment when, right before she drops the wand, when uh, they're crawling along that wall and she's panicky and kind of scared. And obviously, you know, you tell me not to look, I'm gonna look. And then she mm -hmm. looks down. And if you, I don't, if, I don't know if you watch with subtitles on, that's the only reason I picked it up. Mm. You hear an echo of that line of Kit saying, I don't understand why he chose you over me. You hear that echoed very, very faintly. Ooh. And then she looks back up. So it's, and it took me rewatching Wildwood after to realize that's divination in a very, very basic kind of, you know, barely there sense, but it's, right. it's divination. And that kind of, that just broke my heart knowing what was coming later. But it was such an interesting thing to notice on a second watch that, especially because that's her, she's manifesting that out of fear, fear mm -hmm. of obviously injuring herself, but, but fear all the same. And I don't think it's a coincidence that right after that is when she drops the wand and she sort of has to figure everything else out without the wand from, from then till when Kit sort of falls through the ice stuff. I love that. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, that's so perfectly put. And I didn't catch that. And I'm glad you pointed it out because I, I try to do a, a no subtitles watch and then a subtitles watch. I only had time for the no subtitles this time, but I chalked it up to, Oh, those voices down there are probably ambiguously magical because we know that there's something else going on here or it's you know there are 
as Scorpia points out, there's going to be a, a, a revolution of some kind, a slave revolt like that she's working on. She sort of has a really cool hero moment, jumps away off the cliff with the ropes, and we'll see where that goes. Um, but I, I figured it might have just been someone calling out or something. But I love that because, like you said, with tying in with losing the wand, it has to come from a personal place. The wand is the wand is a catalyst you know the wand is to channel but it's it's not creating what you have and that's that's what i love is you know the the bush is finally grown she finally cracks that spell through rage mm -hmm. and she finally cracks this even unknowingly through fear and mm -hmm. so it's it's the whole of who you are is what's going to be able to uh unlock your fullest potential and even her her resourcefulness and her wit um you know having come from i love the nakmar like her baking experience playing into how she's able to sort of circumvent the rules of the spell well well if we do this this and this that's real world ingenuity that's playing in in different ways um the way that she's able to blast them out in wildwood uh she's finding she's taking the long way around this training process where it's sort of on the job training not by the book training it's about who who alora dannon is because of having been Brunhilda slash Dove that makes it work. It's not because uh, Razelle was there to train her, or Willow or, or Shalindria herself. Like this is sort of like a lot of fantasy stories do. Magic is gone-ish or magic is diminishing. And as magic starts to come back, and some of that is by Sorcerer's design, but as it starts to come back, it has to come back, you know, through the kids, through who they are. Um, which I think is great. And like you said, losing the magical tool um, is really important because who are you without it? You know, it's 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 that thing that all heroes have to go through. Like, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker, you're not going to need your lightsaber when you go into the cave. Spider-Man, if, you, if you're not Spider-Man without the suit, you shouldn't have the suit. Like different things like that. Like that comes up in so much of our pop culture. We have to strip it away from you um, to see what you actually can do and it's you know her ability to break this ice i mean it does cut away but as she starts to do it as she starts to harness that power it's through understanding and kit has come to understand her a little bit she's come to understand kit a little bit but these are two people with like you said earlier equally valid stances which is what i love that everybody in the crew is entirely understandable from their point of view, which I think is a, is a hard thing to pull off because it's it's very easy in TV to damn one side of the argument. Yeah, I think this this show does a really great job of sort of I don't want to call it unreliable narrator because I don't think that's what it is, but it is like we said earlier, it never really gives you the full truth, so it kind of never it never you're never able to posit things kind of in black and white and i think that's why alora's journey is is so compelling because you know willow obviously thinks there's a right way but the more you watch and the more you sort of understand about the way that she interacts with the world it, the the thing that comes to mind is uh is kit saying to her in nakmar you know just throw out the recipe you know don't mm -hmm. don't worry so much about the rules and i think that's sort of that line kind of encapsulates the entire way that Alora is going about this, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, the way that she in the first episode ran away from the camp and, and got through the veil herself or mm -hmm. the barrier by herself. Yeah. You know, she figures out how to the possum bladder thing in Nakmar. Yeah. 
she is figuring out how to operate without Shirlandry's wand. She's throwing out the recipe, and I think that's it plays really interestingly into the the whole coming of age thing where once you're an adult, you do kind of have to figure things out by yourself. There's not always going to be a person next to you. And, and Elora does have the distinct advantage of having not only Willow, but also kind of begrudging older brother Borman and Jade and Kit, who she does seem to be kind of becoming a little closer with. Obviously you get that moment where she's having a bit of what I would describe as a panic attack. And she, she, I believe she calls Jade Jay, which obviously mm-hmm. kind of implies some kind of closeness. So yeah. she's getting closer with these people, but it is that that coming back to that idea of, yeah, sometimes you have to chuck the recipe book in the trash and sort of figure it out the way that it works best for you. And I think that's really a, a, a good example of the power she's going to come to possess, obviously, because she's, you know, empress of the nine realms, all of these things. She's like the most powerful being that's ever lived. So she is able to operate without the wand. She is able to cook with it, you know, like she does in Wild. Yeah. She's yeah. pushing all of these. And I think for her, it's about coming into herself. For Willow, mm-hmm. it's about accepting that that's gone, that, accepting that maybe the way that he looks at the world isn't exactly how, you know, it, you don't have to do things exactly that way every time, which I think is much like Sorsha kind of hiding Alora and Jade away, motivated a bit by fear and also a bit by uh, insecurity absolutely yeah it's motivated by insecurity and you know there are still events that are undefined why did the nelwyn go underground what did happen to his wife and son there are still willow questions to be answered pain still to be unpacked but what i love about what you're saying is that it's so true as you become adult you have to find the recipe shocking as it may be uh dear listeners and 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 viewers um sometimes you go to school and you get a degree and it doesn't matter Sometimes you get a job uh, and you and, and you do that job, and you do it really well, and it doesn't matter. And you end up end up doing something completely different. Uh, things you have to figure them out on the fly. Um, Maggie, you know, you work in the digital lens- landscape. I work in the digital media landscape. It's uh, you have to stay frosty. You have to stay froggy, uh, flexible, whatever F word you want to use. Um, th- sometimes F words I won't say here. Uh, and, and, and things like that. Like it, it can be a little bit frightening and and but what's the irony though what i like is that so many of these stories are cyclical and sometimes the older generation has to realize oh they are they're going through and willow's not at this point yet but she's going through what you went through willow it's just that she has to do it her way because your journey and as he tries to impart on her in episode two your journey was defined by the fact that you thought it had to be a finger test that it had to be a set set of rules and the trick was that it wasn't is that it was you and by the end of willow the film he doesn't defeat bav morta through any of rizel's training he defeats her with the trickery and the sleight of hand that he already had and so he's already internalized this it's the fear and it's the 20 years that have gone by that have made him sort of forget this but she's paralleling you man like you want to sit willow down and say Never forget the pig trick. Never forget everything that you did that was against, you know, against the book. Never forget the allies that you chose. It was Mad Mardigan, this rogue who up until you had no allegiances. It was these two brownies and then the the, the evil princess that turned good. That was the motley crew that you put together. And so now it's like it ha- you have to sort of remember that the next generation is going to go through the same things you went through, but they have to find their own way and they have to keep throwing out that recipe 
And I think that was a huge moment of growth for Kit and Alora, but now to challenge them in this way too, uh, it, the pain needed to be here. And it'll be interesting to see how the rest of them continue to throw out that recipe because Graydon still has to face the legacy of the Haster name and of what his father has asked him to do. Very casually throws out that King Haster asked him to murder Borman, uh, which was just a small side. Um, and he's been through hell. And so his story is still the most mysterious, but I'm sure we'll get more of it. Um, how are you feeling about... I don't even want to call it a love triangle because I don't know if it will be one, um, but about the feelings he has for her versus the feelings she has for Eric. That's not a triangle. It's more like parallel lines. It's like, it's a weird, like top of a house. Like it's not, I wouldn't call it yeah. a love triangle. And I don't think that's what they're trying to push at which thank God, because love triangles are my least favorite thing. Yeah. But uh, as somebody who is very kind of pro ship, I'm loving the kind of, what I believe people have dubbed it Grey Laura. Like I'm, mm. I'm, I'm enjoying that because I think it's very interesting. The three different sort of I'm gonna call them romantic relationships that they've posited through mm. this show. You have Jade and Kit, who are obviously what I've been referring to as the emotional core of the show. Yep. You have Scorpia and Borman, which it's interesting that the pre-established relationship it's got a lot of parallels to Sorsha and Mad Mardigan, I think for obvious reasons, mm -hmm. but it's pre-established. You don't need to find out a whole bunch of that to kind of believe in it and, and enjoy it. And then you have Graydon and Alora over here, and it's it. I I'm interested in it. I think partially because I'm so enamored with Tony Revolori as Graydon. I think he's doing such a fantastic job because much the thing about all of these characters is that any of them could kind of fall to the wayside because there's so many of them and they could just turn into a kind of a stereotype and he could have just turned into kind of sad angry frown prince as <laughs> rule refers to him yeah um but i think he he's doing such a great job with playing an awkwardness that's believable that you believe that he has potential and i think what's interesting with him and this is something that somebody else on the internet noted so i can't take full credit for it is that you notice that after Nakmar, he's he talks more, he's more open, he's mm -hmm. still obviously sort of figuring out how to communicate with Alora, but he is more open. He's not, you know, there's there was a sort of metaphorical exorcism that happened, I think, in tandem with the very, very real exorcism that the poor kid had to go through. Absolutely. But I do think, yeah, I, I'm fascinated by him and I'm very interested to see where his arc culminates, particularly in relationship with Alora, but just as a small aside, the one note that you mentioned earlier when they're they're sneaking into the to the mines and Graydon, poor Graydon's trying to have this like <laughs> yeah. talk to Alora about his feelings. And in my notes, I literally I echoed Borman and went, Graydon, Bubby, now is not the time. But mm -hmm. the cutaway when Alora and when he's like, I don't know, you know, when an appropriate time's gonna be, and it cuts away and it's them talking in the foreground and Borman just kicking troll ass in the Oh background. yeah, yeah. It oh it's so, so good. Funny. It was yeah. such a it was such a like not an like kind of an, an 80s cut, like very comic heavy and it for you know, normally I don't really love it, but for some reason I think because Tony Arvalori and Ellie Bamber are so earnest that it just worked so so well and it was so like but to kind of circle back i do i'm very interested to see what ends up happening with Graydon and alora because i do think possibly 
there could end up being a time where he does have to rescue her the same way she rescued him because you get those moments of him being incapable and you know when they go to rescue her in episode three he's kind of unable to untie the things and sort of ends up disappointing willow and everybody in the party but i do think that's gonna flip like i I can see it in a very archetypal way sort of going the direction of him getting to step up and i hope he does because i love him a lot i I hope so too and and you know and you're you're so endeared to him because of the immense amount of pain that he experienced as a child having his agency taking taken away i love the inverse that comes with them i've noted it on a couple episodes but especially since nakmar like he did he's been possessed twice now throughout his life he's had his agency taken away he's he's murdered the person he loved most because of this as a as a young boy like he he is the inverse of her not just in terms of morality or because of magical light and magical darkness but the thing about Alora Dannon that I love in the movie is that she's been making choices since before she was able to speak you know Shalindria tells Willow the baby chose you the baby likes you the baby wants you to be her guardian and Alora's you know, ability to make choices and everything has permeated her entire life. Um, even though they've tried to hide it with her upbringing with hair dye, which is now, you know, being uh, less and less of a factor as we go on. Whereas Graydon has never had any choices. And so for to be enamored with her and to have, you know, to be falling for her in this way, I think makes a lot of sense in terms of what he's lacked, you know, what he sees in her, I think is what he wishes he could be um which is you know there's the line there of romance versus romanticization you know if, if we get to eric and she sticks with eric he's gonna have to deal with that and that's gonna suck for Graydon. but at the same time what you've learned from her and what she's given you is, is a little bit more humanity um mm-hmm. i think is great and and about that that comedy beat what i love about that about them talking and having this tender moment and this 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 moment about ideas while there's combat in the background is that like the show does so well, it's, it's answering questions. I didn't know I had um, like, what would it look like? Like people pointed out at the beginning of Wildwood, this looks like the way it feels to play D and D. But what I loved about this moment is that it's like, this is what it looks like to be a non-combatant in D and D. Like <laughs> it's like everybody doing their thing. And you're like, moral support i'll be a bard like i'll play something or we'll have a conversation and yeah especially all- because graden is kind of literally the bard in a sense mm-hmm. because you do see him playing his little flute at, at points but it also it does that does occur to me there's all of the fighting in this episode is pretty much just Borman and allagash like it's mm. there's and kit uh and and jade a little bit but like thinking of all of the sort of action pieces it's that it's both times that Borman and Allagash get into fights, it's the trolls, which I would like to come back to the trolls because I have a yes. lot of thoughts about those. Yes. But it is interesting that that this specific environment has kind of isolated people to the point where really, yeah, only the warriors are doing the fighting. Whereas, you know, you get the other sort of bigger set pieces where it's everybody. So mm-hmm. I think it does sort of, it brings out people's strengths, but also, you know, a lot of those fights that Borman and Allagash are in are between themselves so it's not necessarily the best of circumstances the fights that they're getting into yeah absolutely um so you mentioned trolls i (laughs) i love the trend that's happening across many different worlds 
some that we cover, some that I cover on my other content and my podcast and stuff. It's happened in Star Wars with Tuscans. It's happened in the Rings of Power with Orcs. It's happened in a few different places. Never did I think that the Willow Trolls would get a recontextualization <laughs> or or a goal of any kind because they're just so mindless and monstrous in that first film. Yeah. And then on top of that, to play them like I said earlier, like a workplace comedy was such a middle management middle management stooges for the crone which was such an interesting thing it it gives them an allegiance it gives them worldly stakes and connects them to our a plot but it also again giving agency and personality to things you don't expect so yeah but break out break out the notes maggie what do you you got (laughs) my many many notes yeah it took me two watches to be kind of not okay like i didn't hate it the first time but yeah. it took me two watches to get the point i think because one of the things that sticks with me about the original willow is mm-hmm. how just utterly skin crawlingly terrifying those trolls are like the yeah. i remember the moment when the one kind of comes crawling down that castle under the bridge yeah and you're like what in the name of god is that and you just it's utter kind of like terror and i mm-hmm. think that on the first watch, the, the sentience kind of took that away because, in a sense, in the original movie, they're monsters. They're they're the same thing as the the death dogs. You know, they don't really have that conscience. But on a second watch, I thought, you know, it, for one thing, the elixir that they mentioned, I wonder, is that what gives them sentience now, or is it just they've decided to sort of make this choice? Right. But also, on a second level, no, they have sentience and they are willingly doing this to innocent people to Kit, to Allagash, to all of those slaves, that is more horrifying than any monster because they are. it is an active sort of choice. And I do enjoy more on a second watch them pairing it with the kind of middle management just buffoons, literally, that, mm-hmm. that you describe them as. And I think it's it was an interesting way to build out those, what were literally looked like monkey suits in the first one because yeah. obviously it was 1988, but it was... It, the more that I watch that episode, the more that I'm kind of enamored with that choice. And I think and I think a lot of that goes back to I do think that this creative team really does understand the world that they're working in and, and what the original film was trying to do. Because And I wrote this down because I, I wanted to kind of cite it in terms of the way that not only hand, the show handles the trolls, but kind of all of Nakmar and all of the other sort of monsters is uh when i interviewed kasdan he mentioned having to give a speech at uh when they did their first table read and he said this is exact quote i hope for only two things that we can make children laugh and that we can scare the living shit out of them and if we can achieve those two things we will have succeeded and i think with the trolls it does do both of that it makes them laugh because they're buffoons Mm -hmm. and then scares you because obviously Every person I know that has watched that, the end of Wildwood where Jade and Kit have that incredible, just, oh my God, it's the most romantic thing I've ever seen. And then out pops a troll out of nowhere, yoinks Kit up into the trees. Every person I know, myself included, screamed and jumped back about three feet. So I think they do still have that inherent terror to them. Mm -hmm. But then you add the sentience, which not only makes them funny, but also makes them a little bit more terrifying, sort of maybe on a less visceral level, but on a more adult thematic level you know the idea of them making that choice to serve the crown absolutely i mean that i mean first of all that moment 
that particular troll, whichever troll you were, uh, we have bad beef, man, because you interrupted a scene that was so tender and beautiful and the acting they were on fire look i i don't know how you find a pair like aaron kelman and ruby cruz uh but they were so lucky to have them in these two roles but then yeah and moving over here like you said the comedy but also the fear you get these these dialogue scenes you get these little beats these little character beats for trolls we'll never see again probably like like you're bad you're so bad at uh finishing my sentences like the way that they go back and forth with each other but then at the same time we're watching alagash at the end get probably ripped apart by them he's getting swarmed and it's that overhead shot and the and the way and the show is gorgeous and and the way that it's able to uh improve upon things you know like these you know the monkey suits in the first one the way that they're able to make them the fully functioning prosthetic masks here and everything like it all looks so good that you believe that they are as dangerous as they are funny. And the thing that's been coming up throughout our entire conversation is choice and agency. The fact that the armies of evil, whether that's the the Bone Reavers or the original Bone Reavers under Kale, as he was the first, that army of Bavmorda, and now the trolls, everybody is falling in line for a reason. Even Bavmorda is given an origin of being, you know, as Willow says, I'm paraphrasing, but she was once young and full of promise like you and, and, and it was talented and all those things that she made the wrong choices. And it's, it's making it a very, as George Lucas is known to do. And then Ron Howard, Bob Dolman, you know, coming in and flushing out his vision and executing it. It's a morality play. It has to be about choices and it'll be interesting to see. I don't know anything about, about the ending, but if, when we get to the season finale, you know, Eric at the end here has this moment of meeting this new character who we don't know much about at this time. Um, is Eric going to be tempted down the path of his grandmother? Whereas Kit, as we've, as I noted, has now the swords of their parents is, has met, an ally of their parents is with the squire of her father has, you know, the, the, the blessing of her mother. Jade is there under the blessing of her mother, but Eric is removed from all of it. And it's like, what, what could he become in terms of their duality? You talked about how they're the split of their parents. It's like, but they're also their grandmother's grandchildren. And I think it's really interesting that everybody in this group in some way or another, Graydon is the most obvious, but everybody that's not Alora has the potential for darkness, disappointment, failure. And in the case of Willow, has already failed and already thinks himself a fraud. And I think that that's it's really interesting. That's not um, it's not one great hero uh, or two great heroes like Luke, Leia, and then one rogue. It's everybody's kind of messed up, and we're and it's this crew. We're the messed up ones that have to facilitate Alora, who is perfect mythically but then at the end of the day there's also still the the hang the you know the hanging thread of but she might have to die to pull this off and so even she is dealing with some sort of choice if it's a self-sacrifice play whatever it is it's 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 really sort of grim um but you know we could go on so long but i want to make sure we get through your notes too uh, before we get out of here so throw something out what else you got I think there were two things that that your immediate conversation sparked, and there was there was one parallel with the trolls that I don't remember, know if you remember in the original movie during that fight at Tyrion with the trolls. There's a moment where 
a troll screams in Mad Mardigan's face and he screams back at it, yeah. which is what is a great comedy beat. But there's a moment when Borman is fighting one of the trolls and it screams at him and he just goes, shut up. And I don't know if that was intentional, but it kind of popped into my head. I was like, that's such an interesting, because obviously the troll screaming is, is one of the things that sticks out for, for me, for Willow. Yeah. And it was, I d- thought that was such an interesting beat but one of the other things i wanted to bring up is did you do you happen to know who plays the sort of mysterious woman that shows up in the immemorial city at the uh, at the end of the episode when eric's sort of wandering around aimlessly okay so i'm about to uh, you're about to tell me but let me <laughs> let me tell you how much i struggled and i paused and i ran it back and i watched her again and it was driving me nuts but i also knew i was going to be talking to you so instead of looking it up I wanted to have a genuine reaction on air. So you tell me. That is, and I forgive me if I'm pronouncing her name wrong. That is Rosabelle mm. Laurenti Sellers, who there's a Game of Thrones connection here because that's Tyene Sand. That's Rosabella. Why does yes. she look, she looks so different. It's the I long did, hair, I think. It's the long hair. Wow. Okay, because I knew she was in the show. She had the premiere. Mm. Um, uh, uh, Nikki, uh, Nikki Kumar is one of my collaborators and one of my best friends, uh, uh, he went to the premiere uh, and then she was there and and we were excited because we're Thrones fans. And I, I thought to myself, OK, well, we haven't seen her yet. Maybe she's uh, one of the Gales and she's just under heavy makeup or something. And and but then at the end, I was like, your face, you're familiar. <laughs> and, you know, it's a it, I, I'm not recommending Game of Thrones necessarily to Willow fans because they're so different. Um, but her big scene very sexual but it is also behind bars and in that and so she's just she's just showing up behind bars and fantasy things that's like her thing i was very i was very happy because i am not a game of thrones person but there was a very brief period of time where i watched just the oberon martell and alaria sand and like sand snakes bits because i was interested in it and so that's the only part of game of thrones that i have ever cared about in any capacity so to see her show up i was like yes yeah <laughs> so you what you won eight seasons of game of thrones and they plucked someone out of the only yeah. things that you watched uh yeah and great time for for everyone involved and there you got jessica hanwick you got uh, obviously that guy Pedro pascal's doing stuff i mean he's doing a little tv show okay. no one's heard of uh and another little tv show uh coming up uh for the last of us fans um and then uh, uh we had indira varma was an obi-wan kenobi and so everybody yeah that that storyline's thriving that storyline's yeah. doing pretty well oh the uh the big uh dornish guard i forget the gentleman's name is uh, eric's dad in sex education yeah um, so that's so that's another that's another person uh yeah that that's so funny that you you specifically watch that stuff we'll have to talk about that sometime off air yeah. um but yeah uh okay wow that was her <laughs> So, yeah, I know you've seen the next episode. So if you know the Mm -hmm. answer to this, you're going to have to play dumb for a moment, which is always an annoying thing to have to do. (laughs) Um, But let's just talk about I'm not going to make you lie and be like, what are your predictions? Because if it's answered Mm -hmm. in the next episode, then I'll be able to clip out and be like, here's where Maggie pretended to not know. (laughs) Um, But instead, I'll ask you a different question. What do you think this means for Eric being that he's been the least used character um, in terms of having him isolated alone. Cause I think there's something to the character that notoriously we don't see a lot of it, but 
we're told he's the womanizer. Oh, who's he, who's he hooking up with this time? You know, he's, he's shirked all his responsibilities all the time for him to be in this never ending, seemingly perpetual, seemingly mystical. You can walk as far away and you still end up at the gate of the city. Um, how is that playing for you in terms of tearing this guy down? Cause I almost feel like he can't be the fun loving brother that he was anymore by the end of this. It's doing a lot I, with a little. I be, People have said that the Gales would have taken him or Kit, which is entirely possible. But mm. I do think that taking Eric from a world where he is constantly surrounded by women, family, people who are attending to his every need, being the yeah. center of attention, to isolating him, being completely alone, all by himself in this place that he doesn't understand, I think makes him very susceptible to being manipulated because he's going to be in a vulnerable position because he's quite literally not going to know how to operate for two reasons. One, yeah. he just got kidnapped. So homeboy is operating on basically all panic responses. And yeah. two, he's in a, he doesn't understand loneliness. I think the way that his sister does, because I don't know, we don't obviously don't know how he was affected by, you know, Mad Marty and leaving. But it seems that Kit was much more strongly affected by that. So I think he doesn't understand loneliness and loss the way that Kit does. So I think they picked him for a reason because I think they knew if they could isolate him, they could get in his head and they could screw with him. And there have been uh, little, they, they released, uh, I believe, like teaser, whatever you want to call it, for the mm -hmm. last handful of episodes. And there are some clips in there that make me afraid that make me very afraid for what is going to happen to this poor boy because obviously and i think he's going to play a major role for for a lot of reasons particularly because they wouldn't put this kid on the press tour if he wasn't no you know, he's been yeah. in, you know this he was in the first episode and then he's been in these small chunks sort of going forwards that are no more than five minutes at a time so i do think he's it's going to come to a head and i do think it's going to be obviously this blood of the six thing is is a major player here so i do think that's going to come into play you know as we enter basically the third act of this series yeah i i love what you're saying about in terms of uh what isolation would do to him in comparison you know you can look at the some of the experiences that are a little bit more for lack of a better term gendered like i guess it, it would be he might not have the immediate I was replaced by a Laura Dannon that maybe Kit would have as a princess mm -hmm. versus being a prince that has sort of the privilege of being one. Um, we don't know a lot about the society, but we do get the idea that it is somewhat patriarchal, despite Sorsha and Bev Morda's rule. Like, you know, the Shining Legion doesn't have women in it, and that's going to change or is supposed to change with Jade, with Jade's uh, nomination uh, by Valentine. And so it's sort of like his his trauma hasn't been unpacked and so to process it it's almost it raises interesting questions we've seen how he's sort of broken by the end when he gets back to the gates of the city and then he returns to his cell and and meets this woman i almost get the impression that this guy if the roles were uh, reversed would have grabbed his dad's sword and jumped in like mm -hmm. he he feels like he has a little bit of that fatal flaw like you said whereas kit had true even bitter as she was and even spoiled as she was and even before a little bit of the humbling um she had a relationship that mattered with mm -hmm. jade and he hasn't had that yet and so what matters 
and and what would you latch on to? And I think that you're right that I don't want to say they picked the weaker sibling, but in terms of in terms of isolation, which is what evil does, um, it is it's it's powerful. I mean that that was that's the story of Sorsha too, bleeding in from the first film isolated from anyone else she could be a good general for her mother but the second that she met other people she became a self-fulfilling prophecy because she mm-hmm. was realizing the world that she was affecting she was mm-hmm. realizing her hand in bav Morda's magical fascist uh, destructive regime um and for them to reckon with it in different ways i'm not going to predict something as big as brother versus sister sword fight but like it's it feels like it's on the table it feels like yeah. something that could happen that you know that thematically would track um with willow somewhere in the middle um of, of a legacy that he's a part of and when with i always think about willow's falling out with sorsha in that flashback where he says she's as mine as 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 much as she is yours these are their kids literally but also their kids collectively um mm-hmm. in terms of like without willow's bravery and his importance he's he's the uncle to these kids in a lot of ways they would not have been born if it wasn't for willow's quest that brought them together um in a lot of ways so it's super interesting so um other things anything else that you wanted to touch on uh, before we start to wind down and wrap no i think we've hit my three pages of notes pretty well I think I think we did sort of pretty much get everything. Um, again, just the performances are all killer. Uh, there are things uh, that are sort of I'm okay with ambiguities. There are things that I want answered. I mean, if tomorrow they announced Lucasfilm and Del Rey are going to do a series of novels about Mad Mardigan and Borman when back when he was a squire, I'm there. I would love to know all of it, but I also am okay with at this point. Uh, not knowing how much of the truth is Allagash's version, how much of the truth is Borman's version, because you know it's somewhere in the middle. Um, and I like stuff like that. So what coming out of this, I guess, final question for you, uh, is the thing that you want more about, need more about, are uh, hoping gets addressed, uh, or maybe the inverse, things that you're okay leaving alone? Oh God, there's so much that I want answers to. I think it's hard to it's hard to quantify, especially because I don't want to say a ton because obviously I've seen next week's episode, so I don't want to yeah. I don't want to spoil anything for anybody because frankly, I I need everybody to like experience this in real time the same way I did. Yeah. But I I I almost just kind of want to see Kit and Alora really sort of come to terms with the what has happened with Mad Mardigan and both Mad Mardigan and Sorsha like I, I want to see them allied because I think that moment of Kit finally breaking and losing her mind on Alora does leave a lot of room for growth going into the last two episodes so I think that's the thing that I most want to see because I am a big found family person it's one of my favorite tropes mm-hmm. and I think that's the thing that this show is very much establishing is that this whole party is a is a found family but specifically those two because in a way, they are both Mad Martian and Sorsha's daughters. You know, they, yeah. it's, she's kind of the, the bonus kid, so to speak. That's your sister. I mean, it, it's it's played for comedy in that original film because he loses her like an hour later. But <laughs> yeah. Mad, Mad Martigan does pledge himself to take care of this baby. He did yeah. adopt her. He lost her, but he did adopt her. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Willow Willow and Mad Martigan were her two dads throughout that film. Um, and then these other kids uh, came around later. 
but you're right they are um thematically spiritually in terms of tradition in terms of choice the choices of the generation on high they are sisters and i think yeah. that it being a story of uh family jade having found her actual sister i think they can find peace if kit can come to terms with her sister in her own way uh that question is raised by scorpio you know eventually you'll have to choose but i think a lot of what the show is saying is synthesis and and can the next generation be better can that barrier come down can the bone reavers finally be understood can the bone reavers that are the descendants of slaves get a piece of the galadorn that they helped build it's, it's it's all of those those real questions that i think kazan was uh and, and his entire team gutsy for asking and have been doing a great job exploring so i think that's it i feel like we could talk about it for hours but i feel yeah. like eventually we got to wrap um I, I joked when going into willow season i was like these will probably be shorter cast really talk episodes i failed i failed at making <laughs> them shorter they're they've all been long um but maggie you've been so great so just d delightful and insightful and just a joy to talk to pleasure i knew you would kill it um so basically what i'm saying is i was right um no uh but why don't you tell everybody where they can find you what you have coming up give them the rundown like you said you had a borman piece uh plug away do all the things i gosh my social links are a mess because i made them when i was like 14 but you can find me at maggie underscore rachel spelled r-a-c-h-a-e-l because my parents are weird that's my twitter handle you can find me at maggie rachel underscore on instagram i'm on tiktok just as maggie rachel and then obviously if you want to read any more of my willow ramblings basically uh you can check out uh collider i'm just on there as maggie bachella like i said i've talked to the cast i've talked to john kazan a couple times if you want some insight into sort of his perspective on these things yes. i've reviewed the show and obviously I will plug my my Borman feature, which is if you go to my author page, the last thing I've written because I'm still so passionate about that character, and it's it's one of my meta things that I'm I'm much more proud of. But that's where you can find me. I don't have anything coming up other than eating my body weight in snacks on years. Yeah, no, that tracks. I mean, that that that's that's a good goal to have, absolutely. And you've done some great work um, outside of the Willow Bee. I mean, if you if you're a, a Marvel fan um well i should specify if you're a marvel fan and you specifically love the punisher um then tattoo entirely yeah. visible on literally literal tattoo uh maggie's absolutely your person uh if you're a daredevil fan maybe not so much maybe <laughs> maybe maggie will dunk on you maybe maybe, maybe she'll take, take you to school i will dunk on you uh, and it will be deserved and very funny but you've written some great stuff some uh, some, some stuff that you know actually you know connecting to mythic tradition and, and you're so well read and you're one of the creators that i really encourage people to follow and 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 you know in a in a in a time when it's very easy for us to come on air or for us to write and just say ah eh, that episode was mid six out of ten or five out of ten like to actually do this and to kick things around and to, to really get in the heads of the characters is what we love and that's why i knew you'd be uh, a really good fit um for what we're doing um and i think that you're great so everybody links are below um well you'll be able to make sense of all the handles you you made it sound like it was gonna be way worse than it was it wasn't it, it's you're very easy to find very accessible um and then as for uh, me personally you can find me everywhere at that alden ds t-h-a-t-a-l-d-e-n-d-i-a-z twitter instagram tiktok kind of uh i don't really use it that much hive um which is back 
I think. Um, and then, yeah, and then Casually Talk is everywhere. If you're on the YouTube side, it's right up there. Uh, there's a QR code if you want to support the show. That'll take you to some links to do so. It's not required, of course, but we appreciate it. Um, Ken will be back. I know he's coming back for the Willow finale. Uh, we'll do. We're also going to do a Willow, like sort of like everybody that's covered it, which you know, Maggie, of course, you're invited to, and we'll talk more off air about it. Um, like a wrap up Willow party, drinks, whatever. We'll go on stream. We'll take live questions, all that stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's coming up. Uh, links down below for everywhere that you can get casually talk on social. Uh, Game of Thrones rewatch will be starting soon after we wrap Willow. Uh, other Tolkien stuff is going to be coming. We'll see what else happens in the future in terms of maybe other properties. I'm not making any promises, but you know, channels got to keep going, right? And shows take forever to film. So we don't even know if there's going to be a Willow season two yet, as much as we want there to be. Um, but as for right now, for me, for Maggie, and for Borman and all of his insecurities, uh, we hope he gets over them. We will catch you next time right here on Casterly Talk.